This morning's New Testament reading comes in the middle of Paul's teaching on food offered to idols and includes in the next verse with the phrase, flee from idolatry. However, the process of the argument shows us something of the connection between the Old and New Testaments. One dangerous way of reading the Old Testament is typology. Dangerous because it's so easy for the imagination to run riot. Moses had 70 elders and therefore our church should have 70 elders. Moses killed an Egyptian and therefore our leaders must be men of action. Moses spent 40 years preparing himself and therefore we should spend 40 years in this wilderness. <laughs> However, for all its danger as a tool of crazy imagination, typology is used in the Bible and no more so than in the passage in front of us, which even uses the word typos and typicos in, uh, typicos in verses 6 and verses 11, usually translated example. That could be more than example, something like a paradigm would be better. The New Testament often looks into the Old Testament and quarries out from the Old Testament things that have happened as explaining what is happening now. More than as simple illustrations, the New Testament claims that the events of the Old Testament happened in order to explain, in order to prepare the way for the New Testament. That is, the New Testament is not an afterthought. It's not some addition to the Old Testament. The New Testament is the reason the Old Testament was written. The Old Testament's not a Jewish book. Uh, talking of the Hebrew scriptures, as some universities do in their divinity departments, is a rejection of the New Testament, is a rejection of Christianity itself. It's like talking about before common era, and common era is just plain anti-Christian, apart from being stupid. The Old Testament is a Christian book written for Christians. That being so, what has the Exodus got to do with us? It's, in one way, the, the Old Testament type of redemption. Roughly, the Exodus is to the Old Testament as the cross is to the New Testament. But it's not identical. Moses was a servant in the household of God, whereas Christ is the son of the household of God. But it's more than just a parallel. For the redemption of Israel happened in the purposes of God for our learning. See, the particular redemption lessons of 1 Corinthians 10 is the Exodus generation was rescued out of Egypt but died in the wilderness. The Israelites all had the same sort of benefits as Christians do, even the benefit of Christ himself, but yet for most of them perished. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual bread and all drank the same spiritual drink, and the, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
But for all that, for all those blessings that they had, most of them, all but two, met the displeasure of God and consequently were destroyed in the wilderness. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And why was God displeased with them? Well, Hebrews chapter 3 tells us it was because they rebelled, because they sinned, because they were disobedient, because of their unbelief. And goes on to warn us of evil, unbelieving hearts being amongst us, of hardening by the deceitfulness of sin or failing to remain firm to the end. But here in 1 Corinthians 10, it's spelt out in terms of desiring evil seen in the examples concerning idolatry. Not just illustrative examples of sinfulness, but types or paradigms for us to learn from. Because these events happened in Moses' time as examples for us that happened, they happened for our sake and were written down for the sake of Christians that we might not desire evil. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Or down in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. I mean, there's no point having unrecorded examples. But for whom are they recorded? Not for the generation that died in the wilderness, but for the subsequent generations, especially and specifically our generation. That is the one upon whom the end of the ages has come that is specifically for Christians. This little passage gives you an extraordinary view of history, an extraordinary view of the scriptures. But standard, standard biblical Christianity and standard biblical uh, viewpoint, its history has a beginning, a middle and an end and it's going somewhere by God's plan, by God's purposes. And scriptures and more than just the historical record of it, the scriptures are living and active, not restrictive to their historical moment. Jesus' birth is so important that events are called before Christ, while everything since Jesus' birth is called AD, in the year of the Lord. There's no AC after Christ. Because Christ is alive, risen from the dead, ruling the universe. And so we live in the final period of history, in the year of the Lord, the year upon the end of all the ages has come. The Old Testament was written to us, to warn us how we live now. Now that we have been rescued, but still await the arrival in the promised land. To warn us now not to desire evil as the Exodus generation desired evil. They had been rescued out of Egypt, but they perished in the wilderness because God was angry with them for their evil ways. We must not be like that generation, my brothers and sisters. We who all receive such blessings, as they receive such blessings, and yet desired evil, neither should we. Four times... We read some, some of them, some of them, some of them, some of them, 
the, the first one referring to the record in the book of Exodus, the other three to the records in the book of Numbers. Firstly, the great failure. Some of them were idolaters, verse 7. At Sinai, they worshipped Yahweh with the golden calf, symbolising the God of fertility and power. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We are so secularised, we fail to see idolatry as evil. Nor a statue as so misrepresenting and insulting the true and living God. Secondly, verse 8, some of them chose sexual immorality, worshipping the Moabite fertility gods, the Baals of Peor. And of course, we're so Christianised that we don't see idolatry and false theology connected directly into hedonistic sexual immorality. Thirdly, in verse 9, some of them put the Lord to the test, put the Christ to the test. And we're such materialists that we fail to thank God for our wealth and find endless opportunity to whinge of our unfulfilled wants. Fourthly, verse 10, some of them grumbled about the leaders God had appointed and we're so culturally and philosophically egalitarian that we don't see the sinfulness of rejecting God's appointed leaders. In all these events, the people desired evil and God destroyed the, most of them. So therefore, take heed. Take heed to the Exodus events that happened and were recorded for us to take heed of. We must not desire evil. We must not be idolaters. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. We must not put Christ to the test. We must not grumble. This is a very worrying passage for Christians. And it should be. It's written to worry the Corinthian Christians and us. We've been taught that our salvation is safe and secure in the hands of our Saviour. None shall pluck them from my hands. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. He who is faithful will present you pure and holy at the last day. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for us, who are being guarded by the power of God. Verse after verse speaks of the assurance that we can have of our salvation. But here we have these verses, and these verses warn us of the catastrophe that will happen to us, the catastrophe that will happen to God's people who desire evil. Here we have Paul explaining his concern about himself being disqualified. For it goes on from the end of verse 9, starting verse 10 with the word for, here we have Paul's explanation. You see, he said, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I want you to know, and then goes on to our passage, Paul will not allow himself to be disqualified, for he is very conscious of the reality of the disqualification and doesn't want us to be unaware of the reality of such disqualification. For they all, that generation, had these incredible blessings bestowed upon them, and yet, and yet, 
with most of them, God was displeased. Their bodies lying in the wilderness, scattered in death. Now there are two classic defences against this warning. One, it couldn't happen to me. And two, there's no help, I can't stand. The couldn't happen to me defence is addressed in verse 12. Therefore, if anyone thinks he is, that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. If you think you're safe, then you should take heed in particular. For you in particular need this warning and need to listen. In fact, of course, those who will stand are those who do take heed of the warning, who are concerned about such things. But the assurance of salvation must not turn into the arrogance of damnation. Just as the perseverance of the saints must not turn into the perversity of sinners. The relational promise of none shall pluck them from my hand must not be turned into the impersonal formula, once saved, always saved. It is relationship that we have with God who protects and saves us, not some theological formula we've crossed where we can tick our box of safety and security and ignore the call of God. Therefore, if anyone let anyone who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. Just as popular and just as wrong is the I can't help myself defence. It's not my fault. It's my, it's my nature. It's my personality type. I've, I've done one of those psychological tests. So I'm J-E-D-P-L-F-5-F. And so therefore I can't help it. I just, I am this. There's no, it's in my genes. I can't help my genes. They, they just were given to me and... I was born this way. God made me like this. Uh, I feel it's right for me. You know, it's me being authentic. To which Paul gives an answer which is a comfort to strugglers and a challenge to the excusers. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You can help it, but there's nothing special about you or your temptation. And God will always look after you. He will always provide the way out for you to endure whatever temptation, testing, trial may be coming your way. You were never pushed. You always jumped. Don't blame anybody else for the choices you make in life. See, there is great comfort for those of us who are facing trials, temptations and difficulties. He won't let us go. He'll always provide for us. There's great challenge for our bad choices. Great challenge as we look back and see our failures. There were ways out. I chose. I did it. Well, so can Christians fall away, you ask? 
And I want to know why you ask. Are you planning to fall away? Trying to work out an option? No, no, of course not. But, but, you know, Philip, can Christians fall away? Make sure you don't. It's the answer to that silly question. For Paul is not into a hypothetical issue for intellectual discussion. He disciplines his body and keeps it under control, lest after preaching to others, he himself should be disqualified. My brothers and sisters, it's a dreadful thing. A thing full of dread. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Make sure you don't. The man or woman of God who hears these words of warning will take heed. The man or woman of God who looks back on their failures will acknowledge that it was their fault and ask God for mercy and forgiveness in the name of the Lord Jesus. God's person will not turn away from Jesus either to desire sin or for some other saviour or God. That's why the conclusion of the Passion is not a discussion of theoretical possibilities or impossibilities, but verse 14, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry. Given that these people were rescued out of slavery in Egypt only to die in the desert without entering the promised land because they desired evil, especially the evil of idolatry, therefore make sure you flee from idolatry. Notice very carefully what he says here. It's flee, not play with, not entertain, not trivialise, not tolerate, not accommodate, not experiment with. It's, it's, it's flee. That's what we've got to do. Run as far and as fast as you can away from it. I know an idol is a nothing. And there is no God but one. But idolatry is very dangerous. Dangerous to sinful people. Dangerous to people like you and me. Therefore, have absolutely nothing to do with it. The idolatry of the Israelites came in many forms. The golden calf, worship of Yahweh, the bars of Peor, the testing of God, the grumbling discontent with these provisions. And it can come to us in many different forms. The dalliance with interfaith religious worship, the visual misrepresentations of Yahweh, the ignoring of his word and ways for more acceptable and less ethically rigorous ways, the, the worship of the created world instead of the creator that leads to materialism and covetousness, the, the worship of the government following the journalists as prophets and the advertisers priests. There's lots of ways you can practice idolatry. Make sure you don't. Whatever they are, there is any number of ways that you can practice both religious and irreligious, both within Christianity and with other religions. But we have been saved by the one and only name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone is the way to the Father. And we must not compromise that unique relationship, but must flee idolatry. It comes as a little surprise, but it shouldn't. That John, when he finishes his first letter about all kinds of things, winds up saying in his very last verse, little children... Keep yourself from idols. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that living and active word by which we deal with you and you deal with us. And we do pray, Father, that by your spirit you would keep us from idols, that you would give to us such desire for living for you that we would not desire evil, but turn away from all false, false roots and all false living, that our lives might bring praise and glory to you and living with such self-control, such discipline, we may never be disqualified. We pray it for ourselves, Father, and we pray it for those who sit with us this day, those beside us on our right and those beside us on our left. Please keep us, Heavenly Father, from idols. And we ask it in Jesus' name.